This is CHUO 89.1 FM. Welcome to this week's episode of The Mosaic, your weekly show highlighting the voices of the community. Here, we guide you through today's social issues, introduce you to changemakers, and keep in touch with the arts, music, and events of the city. You can expect extensive research, in-depth analysis, and discussion. From CHUO's news team, this is The Mosaic. Last week, the War Museum held a panel for the anniversary of the Battle of Hong Kong, a lesser-known history. Nearly 2,000 Canadian troops were overtaken by a Japanese fighting force in Hong Kong and became prisoners of war. Their imprisonment was one of the longest of World War II, lasting nearly four years. The troops were starved, beaten, and assaulted. Chief Historian and Director of Research for the museum, Tim Cook, led the panel discussion. Among his panel guests were Mike Babin, president of the Hong Kong Veterans Commemorative Association, Jonathan Reed, author of The Captain Was a Doctor, a book about his father who was a prisoner of war. Dr. Chi Men Kwong is an associate professor in Hong Kong, and Viveka Melki is a writer, researcher, and filmmaker. Clips from her 2020 film The Fence established a backbone to support the panelists' conversation. Members in the audience saw reflections from three survivors from the Battle of Hong Kong. The interviews were shocking and revealing of the conditions that the prisoners of war experienced. Yesterday, I spoke with Viveka Melki about the years and years of research that went into the making of the film. We talk about how she found the survivors, ethical storytelling, and sharing the truth as a means of healing. Here's our conversation. I was at the panel last week, which marked an 82nd anniversary for the start of the Battle of Hong Kong, which is huge and monumental, and also unfortunately came about a week after we lost the last veteran who survived as a prisoner of war. Yes, Um, when we just forget. Right, yeah. So, so we got to see some clips there from the fence, and I want to talk to you so much about this film because it is so wonderfully put together, and it's a, it's a story that not a lot of people actually know about. Um, in your work, you like to focus on topics that are often overlooked. This took like 10 years of research for you. <laughs> yes, it did. It was, uh, research was very difficult on this film, for a number of reasons. We know that the Asian Pacific War was not as documented. Uh, that's a lie. It was documented. It was not classified. So we have documents that are in archives in various places that have not been classified. So it's not easy to find. Because I always say about history, uh, I don't have an arrogance of saying, oh, I found something. Uh, I found something because it was digitized. Okay, so those before me were probably looking for it also, but we live in an age where it's easier in a way to make history, right? And so it started with these letters of Colonel Jack Price that I was reviewing and researching and scanning. And I started to feel like there were strange things in the letters. There were things not being said. And so I started to go online and reach into amazing networks Um, There's a POW research network uh, online that you can go and find people who were U.S., uh, Europe, Canada, and they're posting archives of their families. There's uh, G-U-W-L-O, which is Elizabeth Ride's website. There's, There's all these amazing, what I would call amateur historians who are gathering information or who had family members 
uh, who were in this conflict. And so they are starting to put their stuff online. So that's how I was researching um, sort of grassroots, you would say. Mm -hmm. And I would reach out to people and I'd be like, would you share your story? And like in our film, for example, you see those shots of the parachutes dropping the food that came from a blind pilot in the United States who was a veteran who had who had actually kept those images when he was actually dropping those food drops. So it's quite amazing. Like the research in the film, the archives come specifically from actual people who were there. And uh, and then in that image, you see it's a classified document from the army that, of course, has been released now. So, yes, that's why it took 10 years. But beyond that, I started to see stories, I what I call in between the lines. And I know I called the film The Fence because it's about black and white and what's in between, which, of course, we know Shamshipo prison was. We rebuilt the POW camp exactly to size and scale. And there was a space in between either sides. And so what I'm what I'm interested in between the lines of these documents is what was sort of not being said, was ashamed to be said or had sort of disappeared from history. Mm, Yeah, really, really casting light on those shadows. And then that research in grassroots, like you said, almost like the truest sense of the word. Um, And I guess you kind of mentioned it started with looking over these letters and looking over like families' accounts. Um, What got you there? I think I'm very interested in how trauma is passed down in multi-generations. I know it's a huge issue in our indigenous communities that thank God we're talking about now a lot more. It's also for me, a huge uh, issue in, in war trauma. And I knew that Japan had a revisionist history as its model. I had seen the history books that did not mention Japan as an aggressor and did not mention any of the POW experience. And that was disturbing. And so I'm seeing it as someone in this generation. Uh, in our film, we have Dr. Kwong, who is this amazing historian. He's of my generation. And, and that was my point, is that who are we today in this generation? What are we hearing? What's being transferred to us? And what is not being transferred? And what does that feel like? And we actually ended up going to Hiroshima, going to the museum. You see the kids at the museum in the film because it was shocking to me. It was absolutely, it was like being in a parallel universe where this story didn't happen. And my broadcaster was the CBC. And I want to say I was really lucky to have such a good broadcaster. And I remember I remember speaking with my commissioning editor. And we said, if you erase their history, then you erase our history also. It's not like you can be in Japan and erase that history. You're erasing our existence at the same time. And so I really came to the story trying to say what had not been said And we have to understand that the veterans in our film, I had been to see them several times. And that was that that story came out slowly. It came out in brackets and it it took a lot of trust to tell us that story. This was a story that had a layer to it that I had not seen in my work with the European war. I hadn't seen it with the Korean war, the Vietnam war. There was something in this that was almost shameful. And what was the shame? What is it that you were so ashamed of that you couldn't tell us? And it, it, in my opinion, it comes back to what George Peterson says. When they came back, nobody believed them. They couldn't believe them. That was like the first thing. They didn't believe them. They went to doctors. They told them what happened. And they were literally not believed. So they stopped talking. Wow. So I was really trying to talk again. Right. 
And after all those years, you'd imagine it gets harder and harder to talk about it. But building yeah. that trust and rapport was very important for you. And I think it gave a really incredible moment. You mentioned at the panel that one of the survivors shared an experience with you that was incredibly traumatic. But after that, they slept fine for the first time in their life after being a prisoner of war. I actually read this book about a bunch of journalists who share their like favorite stories where they really did something incredible. And there's a CBC journalist uh, named Red Sharon, and he also brought a Canadian prisoner of war back to Nagasaki. And I think that was in like 2015. He said the same thing, though. Um, it was really hard to get that veteran there because of all that trauma and that history that was really painful. But after he was there, and as emotional and hard as it was, he also slept fine for the first time in his life after that, too. I think that there's something really interesting there, and I'm wondering if you can tell me more about what you think about how sharing this and, and sharing your story, how that goes to heal trauma and wounds. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think, uh, oof, that's a very good question. I think that I am of the school of thought that says that it's okay that trauma happens to us. Childhoods that have had trauma, lives that have had trauma, make for people who are resilient, strong, empathetic. Not that we wanted that to happen to people, but I am not a person who says that that's sort of the end of a life or I think healing from that trauma is a responsibility, not just for us, but for our families and our children. And we live in a society where that is available to us. I will hesitate and say that the cost of that is way too high. A lot of people cannot afford the therapy that they need. You just have to look at those who came back from the Afghanistan war. You just have to look at, at our modern wars. And it's better now, but when George came back from war, there was nothing offered um, for him to go and, and heal that. So I do think, I am with a school that says that speaking about your trauma, sharing it, doing PTSD therapy, doing you know regressive therapy, whatever it takes, to make you live your best life after that experience. I'm also someone who says the trauma never goes away, is with us forever. However, we learn to live with it as we learn to live with PTSD. So I think it's fantastic that people can talk about their trauma. I find that it needs to be actually where our space is, as in here in our company, we do ethical storytelling. And that is a place that acknowledges your trauma. If you're dealing with material as a journalist, as a filmmaker, that is traumatic, then we are providing you a healing to do your work, to keep doing your work, but to try and do it in the healthiest way. Mm -hmm. And I wanted and to ask... I wanted to ask you about that too, that, that trauma-based reporting, because um, as a filmmaker, you also mentioned that there were some things that you chose to leave out, because when the subject of you know, sexual assault was brought up and, and alluded to, you don't need to give the gory details about that. Um, but I'm assuming that after 10 years of research and all these interviews, there must have been a lot more that you were pondering, keep or cut, and I kind of want to oh. hear your take on asking a great question. <laughs> you, I'm gonna, okay. The question you're asking is how much of the horrendous treatment did we cut? And we cut a lot. 
And this is not something that someone brought up at the panel, but I'm glad you're bringing it up now. We chose to keep certain stories in the film from our veterans, like the historical, like the story that George Peterson says about babies on bayonets. Babies on bayonets is a contested historical fact by Japan. We didn't do it. It didn't happen. The Chinese have gone as far as to dig up graves to prove it. George Peterson tells us that story, having seen it at the fence. So the reason I kept the particular stories that you see in the film are because it's part of the narrative of the film of revisionism. We cut the stories that were horrendous because we had to make those decisions, but because we felt that those stories were not moving this story forward. Every time we make a history film, we try and move it forward. So what were the stories that George had spent his life suppressing, not sharing, and that had also been part of revisionism? So we put those stories in the film because we're like, okay, if we have 10 of these and they were awful, if we have 10 of these stories, then which are the ones that are going to actually help either heal, move forward, support? Because for me, that's the purpose of a history film. It's not to make history. It's to move the conversation forward and tell it in the time that we live in, which is the time of you and me, not only the methods we use, but the voice we're allowed to have. And so that that's why we just we picked those two stories. But yes, Lauren, we had many awful stories that we did not put in the film because we sometimes felt they were too much for the audience to hear. And even the ones that are in there now have caused concern. They've they, they were not easy. And honestly, I can't begin to say, I mean, I work with a number of broadcasters. I can't begin to say how huge it was that the CBC let us make this film. Mm. There was they, they supported this film because that's enormous, which is, I know it's a time of way too much movement. I know it's a difficult time at the CBC, but that should be the mandate of a national broadcaster is to tell your history and to tell it true without any government controlling what you're being saying and who you're going to offend. So, you know, it was amazing. And, and even the veterans came forward after and said, it's amazing that you were able to tell the story wow. because we felt we couldn't have that voice and tell those stories for a long time. That's amazing. And um, I, I wonder, was that decision, like well, all those decisions along the way, how difficult was that? Especially when you said yourself, this history is something that has been revised in the past. Is there, Are there things that you really, really wanted to get in there, but thought the audience might not be ready for it? Ah, the most difficult decision was not history. It was the Hong Kong situation. That was the hardest thing to put in the film. We had finished making the fence when the Umbrella Revolution occurred in Hong Kong. We had one more filming to do just to finish the film when that occurred. And I made the decision to integrate that into a film that was about World War II. And the reason I did that was because I felt that we were talking about democracy. And democracy was a theme in the film. It was an important one. and. I asked the consent of the family of George if it was okay that the statement he's making about democracy is put over a modern conflict. Hmm. Because even that is a, is a decision, is a consenting decision. So that was a difficult choice. 
because I know that there were those who didn't support me doing that. But as a POV, as a point of view, Canadian filmmaker, I have my politics and I'm honored and privileged to have that voice. And I really, I was, my God, I was there two weeks before it all went to hell. And it's the most terrifying time. And the fact that I got on a plane and left that, I will never forget that feeling. And I just, I love Hong Kong. And I felt I had to speak up because I could. And I felt that that democracy was was disappearing again. You you don't have to answer this if, if you're not comfortable, but can you tell me more about that experience before you left? Yeah, those streets were absolutely empty. In Hong, there was nobody on the streets. You know, Lauren, I can speak freely. I will never go back to China and I will never go back to Hong Kong. Those places are gone for me. And that's okay. If this was the price of it, that's okay. It was a terrifying time because until you've seen democracy disappear, you were watching it disappear in front of you. Now, I come from a country that had a dictator for a very long time, which was the Gambia. That's where I'm from. And so I've seen a non-democratic society. But what I was watching this time was I was watching it disappear. And that was a shocking thing to see. And it and it goes slowly and it goes in pieces. And it was really hard to watch this society that was so advanced lose its voice. And so I stayed in the hotel most of the time. I only went out to shoot what I had to. And then I left for the footage and I knew I was never going back. Wow. And of course, that's something that you touch on in the documentary and you share these stories of these veterans. Um, You also share the story of a woman named Luba. And uh, I I wanted to ask you more about how you got in touch with these veterans and how you got in touch with Luba because it's pretty incredible what you did. Can you touch on that? I hope she's listening. Luba Estes is an amazing woman. She lives in the United States. And I have to tell you something really funny. Hmm. Luba used to work for the CIA. So when I arrived to interview Luba, she interviewed me. (laughs) which was really funny because I got a full CIA drill. It was fantastic. That's an interesting experience. It was amazing. (laughs) She's an amazing woman. So Luba's father, Alexander Skortsov, does the drawings, which she turned into a book later in life, but he makes 100 copies of these drawings and he gives them to 100 people. And one of them was Jack Price. And it's signed to the three uh, leaders of the three regiments that were there in the front of the book. And so... We then started looking. These drawings are incredible. They were in the Jack Rice collection. And I was like, okay, who is Skortsov? Who is this person who did these incredible drawings? Because again, in a place that has no history recorded, they were showing starvation, a map of Hong Kong, things that could have got him killed. We call every Luba Estes in Florida. We find a tiny article on this woman who had a father in the camp. We trace back, we call every Luba Estes, was your father Skortsov? And finally, this woman with a fabulous, fabulous mix of Russian-British accent answers the phone. And we fly down and we go and sit with her and we spend a long time. She's an amazing person. And she tells us the story of how she was this child living in Hong Kong. Now, many things about that make it fascinating. And why do you insert it in a Canadian company, Canadian story? The fact is that Luba was living the reality of Hong Kong proper. And for me, it's very important to have the Chinese side of the story because we lost 291, but they lost 50,000. So 
it's not only right about us going to a country and and hoping that we're going to help and who are the people who suffered and how did they suffer and so that's the other side of the fence of course and this luba ends up being a stateless person living in hong kong so she's able to tell us what's happening in hong kong because our pow's are inside the camp they don't know what's happening outside in fact that's one of the things that's awful they're either in the battle or then afterwards they're inside the camp but luba's actually living in Hong Kong. And so we're able to see another side of the story. I think what I'm trying to say is Luba brought perspective to history. And what I love is I am definitely a feminist filmmaker and I like to put the voices of women forward and how they experienced war, because I think women suffer war, but they're not often the voices of war. And so that's why we have Luba, who's also one of the central characters. In fact, you'll see that we had an actress who was doing reenactment and it was incredible because she actually, Luba like was astonished. She moved like her, she looked like her. It was incredible. So it's, it's about bringing women's voices forward also in history. Right. And, and you're right. She was wonderfully spoken. She's got a beautiful voice. And I actually remember watching the film. There's like a moment where the light casts a shadow on this birdcage behind her and it spreads back. And it's just such a beautiful image. And I guess the younger actress who portrays Luba in these scenes, she moves like her. And you mentioned that you wanted to keep wardrobe and props in the set as authentic as possible. You know, the, the fence, and it was to scale. So what, what's the importance to you about keeping things as authentic as possible as a documentary maker? Yeah, absolutely. That, that is a focus for me, um, much to the chagrin of my crew, who is <laughs> under pressure. Um, um, this is revisionism. And in a history that's already got shadows around it, confusion, archives that have been hidden for years, voices that haven't been heard, I think our duty is to at least get it as close to accurate as possible, at least to uh, take you into a world that is as respectful of that disappeared history. And so we really, we had an amazing crew who understood that right from the beginning and did everything they could to help me get actual archive pieces that were shot in the film. But when I break those hundred year old Christmas balls that smashed to the table in the film, it broke my heart. Oh my God. Those are actual Japanese Christmas balls that are a hundred years old. Wow. And I sacrificed them oh <laughs> for my this goodness. film. So you really want to get that take. Yeah, we, you really did. We, <laughs> on our Instagram, you actually see us doing that shot because it was like you had three. We had some fake ones to bounce from Walmart and then we had the real one and that was it. But we had this amazing director of photography, Claudine Sauvé. The film was actually nominated for its its photography. And uh, she was amazing because she was so respectful of how I was really trying to get this absolutely right. But I remember the tinsel, everything was absolutely perfect because I wanted to give them back something that had been taken, which was which was that this is not being erased, at least because a film becomes a document, right? A film goes into schools, a film becomes something that is an existing piece of history in a way. And so at least we could do our best to get it right. Mm -hmm. The attention to detail is immaculate and those years and years of research really show. Um, I have so many geeky questions about the nitty gritty details that go into the making of this film because you have incredible archive footage in there and you mentioned some of it even comes from survivors themselves. Can you tell me a little bit more about the journey to get that archive footage for the film? Yeah, I'd like to tell you about compassion 
actually, because compassion is a big part of this film. Let me go one step further to explain that the chrysanthemum flowers that you see in the film, that Luba's actually eating, they would pick the chrysanthemums and eat them. The chrysanthemum flower is the flower of compassion. It is also the flower of the Imperial House of Japan. So that's how far I went in insisting that we had the national flower in the film. So there is an amazing group called the POW Research Network of Japan. They are in Japan. They are made up of Japanese professors and historians who are determined to tell the truth about their own history. It is thanks to them that I got the image of the Christmas dinner. There's a Christmas dinner scene and they are the ones who had it for us. So what I want to say is I was very clear that my issue was with the history books and the right-wing government of Japan. That was my issue. It is not with the Japanese people or with the amazing historians who were already there, like Dr. Tanaka in our film, who were determined to tell this story. So it was with their help that we were able to get that, that Christmas scene with the goat. It's, a, it's actually this picture that's taken and it, it is the actual picture and we got it from them. And they will go and do research within Japan, within archives, to bring forward this story. And their hope is that this kind of truth-telling um, makes their society stronger. Hmm. Because how is vulnerability a weakness? To be vulnerable is to actually have strength. And so to, to be able to sell, this is our story. This is what we did. The other incredible thing that I did was I was in contact with somebody who I'm actually not going to share her name because she's actually concerned about her safety in Japan. And she has the last interviews of the Imperial Guards of the army. And so I listened to many, many hours of Imperial Japanese guards who were telling us what they did and what happened. It's really important to me to actually hear those stories and to see the other side and then to journey past that into compassion and understanding. And that's where in the film, you see us talk about starvation and the starvation of the troops and 80%, I think it's the number, died of starvation. They were sent from their own country by their own government, and then they starved. And so there has to be, I think, when we retell history, it's not black and white. There has to be some compassion. But it was with those people in Japan that we would actually go, and we were actually looking at firsthand archives, journals, and everything else. Mm -hmm. Like completely immersed in the history there. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, how did that play into your conversations with these veterans? Lauren, you ask very good questions. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> because that was not always a conversation. I think that when you have a story, when you're George McDonnell or you're George Peterson, or the I met about 15 veterans, they were still alive at the time. When you have your story and your story is one that you've told for a long time. And it's very clear. And it's the way you saw it. When I arrive with Luba's story or Dr. Tanaka's story, it's maybe not the place. My place then is to listen to your story. What makes us film directors and point of view film directors is we put all that together and we make a narrative that has many sides. But when I was with the veterans, my key focus was supporting them listening to them, not re-traumatizing them. And if there was a re-traumatizing that occurred, supporting them after. Those were really, that takes a lot of time. And that is very good. It's ethical storytelling. But it takes a consciousness that does not stop when the camera's off. And so I had mentioned to them that Lupa existed, that I had been to Japan, 
But George Peterson, for example, did not really want to hear me talk about my views on Hiroshima today. He already knew. They know what's happening to the history. They know what's in the history books. And it's painful to know that your suffering is not even mentioned. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's such a huge element of truth telling in the films that you make. If I can take it back to the beginning, when you were deciding that you wanted to get into filmmaking, what was the vision at that point? Did you know that this is the kind of documentary you'd want to be making? Not at all. Mm. Lauren, when I came to Canada, Canada Immigration did not want filmmakers. They asked me, could I go and do something else? Because I really didn't need any more artists. I think about that when I'm sitting on the stage at the War Museum. Um, and I went into something else. I think it was marketing and communications. <laughs> so I was there doing that, surviving for a long time. It took me 10 years to become Canadian, a really long time. But I was determined. This was the country I had chosen. It wasn't just an accident. So back then, no, I didn't know that truth would be the narrative of our production house. Now, just to make you laugh, Viveka means truth. Mm, really? So my father must have known what he was doing. But yes, truth is very important to me. You know, we say that a filmmaker is making one film their whole life. And all our films focus on truth, but on resilience. Human resilience is huge. And I think my African upbringing is a reason why. I was in a revolution myself. I've seen enormous amounts of suffering. I am a survivor of many things myself. And so I feel that human resilience is actually what fascinates me. But if you want to heal, come back to that. I think we have to tell the truth and tell it to yourself, tell it to someone who's listening. But from there, the healing can begin. So I actually, Melky Films, all our films are on truth telling, but healing attached to it. I think it's what I hope for our society. I think it's what we need. Mm -hmm. And I'm running out of time here, but I just wanted to close on saying that you do have a newer film and it's more about sex trafficking. Uh, could you tell me a little bit more about that? Trafficked Voices just came out on CBC and uh, it is on sexual human trafficking in Canada, which is, again, something that's hidden and people don't know. But Lauren, I'll tell you, we're making three films on trafficking in Canada. The next one comes out next year on the TELUS National and also on Radio Canada. So the fact is, it's a big enough issue that we make three films on it. Wow, major. Well, thank you for sharing that with me. Is there is there anything else that you'd like to add right now? I just want to say I really enjoyed this interview because your interest in history gives me hope. Thank you, Viveka. I really appreciate your time. That was my conversation with Viveka Melki, director of The Fence. The documentary is available to watch for free on CBC Gem. And that's it for this week's episode of The Mosaic. Thanks so much for tuning in. Music for The Mosaic is by Halizna. To listen to this episode and previous ones, go to chuo.fm slash podcasts. If you're interested in joining our news team, email news at chuo.fm. We'll see you next week, Thursday at 1 p.m. 